millions of people into wilderness areas, building cities in those areas, pushing them up against the biome. Between 1995 and, and 2020, we put a population about the size of Los Angeles into the Wuhan area, for instance, 400 million people in similar situations across China. This was happening across Asia. So we were increasing the likelihood of a spark. And when that spark hit, we were also increasing the likelihood of a spread. We connected those cities by 16 major high-speed rail lines between 2012 and 2019. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jonathan Brill. Jonathan, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So why don't we do this? Tell us, why don't you start off telling us a little bit about your career background, and then let's jump into what the new book's about. Yeah, that sounds great. I spent the better part of 20 years, uh, 25 years running product innovation programs. And about five years ago, I was asked to join HP for, for a number as their global futurist for a number of reasons. One is the diversity of what I'd done. I'd worked across uh, a number of industries. And the second is that I'd done a lot of work on product portfolios. So helping a large consumer electronics company figure out what to do as the margins on, on mobile phones topped out. What other types of businesses could they be in? Working with food and beverage company to do similar sorts of things. Working with the U.S. government to figure out how do we produce enough food to literally feed the world. Yeah, so the problems started off being really small and then they started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to like, you know, is there a better future kinds of questions. And and uh, so HBI hired me to be their futurist and I worked uh, across the organization to help them figure out how to drive more resilience in the organization and that also how to drive growth. And I think that played out really interestingly over the last year, over COVID, where their uh, largest U.S. competitor, a company called Xerox, who was attempting to acquire HP at the time, had about a 69% drop in earnings per share by Gap. Well, HP stayed stable through through COVID. So that focus on resilience and and, uh, figuring out how to balance that with with short-term performance really paid off. That's great. So tell us about Rogue Waves. Yeah. So about a year ago, I got a phone call saying, hey, you know, you, you're pretty good at this future thing. I know you were talking about writing a book about what happens after the next financial disruption. It seems like it's here. And that's that's kind of how Rogue Waves came into existence. The idea behind a Rogue Wave is that, you know, you've heard of black swans, right? These these incalculable risks that appear out of nowhere by surprise. Well, it turns out that very few things that actually uh, truly disrupt businesses are completely unpredictable and happen completely by surprise. Most are rogue waves. They're, they're these, these massive, sudden, unmanageable disruptions that occur because smaller waves of disruption that were individually manageable collide all of a sudden in a certain place or time. And because we know in many cases, what those overlapping changes will be, we can start to imagine what would happen when they hit. Awesome. Why don't you give us an example? Uh, COVID's a great example. So we we were looking at uh, 100-year pandemics and saying, hey, you know, it's been like 100 years since there was the Spanish flu. The reality, though, is what's happened is we've gotten better and better and better and better. 
at stopping pandemics, at containing them. And so over the last number you know, of years, over the last 20 years, we've had several respiratory pandemics that have appeared out of nowhere, and we've been successful at containing them. So they're happening more frequently, but we've gotten better at, at kind of holding them at bay. The, the reality is you might know about systems or about life, like eventually the system breaks down. And we were doing a lot in the face of COVID to ensure that happened. We were putting millions of people into wilderness areas, building cities in those areas, pushing them up against the biome. Between 1995 and, and 2020, we put a population about the size of Los Angeles into the Wuhan area, for instance, 400 million people in similar situations across China. This was happening across Asia. So we were increasing the likelihood of a spark. And when that spark hit, we were also increasing the likelihood of a spread. We connected those cities by 16 major high-speed rail lines. Between 2012 and 2019, the uh, amount of tourism out of China increased tenfold, moving it from an irrelevant tourism spender to the largest tourism spender in the world. And that wasn't just happening in China. That was happening across Asia, across India, across Southeast Asia. It was happening globally. And so when that spark hit, which we were increasing the likelihood of, the likelihood of spread hit too. Same thing happened in 2008 with the financial crash, right? We had a desire to have more new home builds in the United States. We took populations that weren't ready to, to pay for those in a downtime. We, we increased the likelihood of them getting mortgages. We added new credit default swaps and, and complex ways of, of managing risk into the mix. You know, and if you look at this from the outside, this was a this was a tinderbox waiting to happen. And the reason I say that is that the people who looked at it from the outside and said, hey, the emperor has no clothes here, they actually made a lot of money. And so we can look at these things and say, hey, you know, the likelihood of risk is increasing, or more more importantly, the likelihood of volatility or beta, you know, is is increasing. And so there's an opportunity here, or there's a threat. If you're prepared, this is massive blue ocean. Everyone else is disrupted. And if you aren't, it's red ocean and and God bless you, outrun the sharks. So give us an example. What's something that you see coming? These are complex questions. You know, I I look at I look at it a little bit differently. I look at it as, you know, there are 10 major trackable trends that uh, are going to overlap over the next decade, and they're going to have different impacts on different types of businesses. We see a range of, of economic trends, so changing demographics, increasing, you know, continued growth of the data economy, so on and so forth. We see an explosion of or a shift in the nature of technology, particularly IT ICT technologies, where Moore's law is starting to run out, most likely. So, so the, the natural progression of processor speed is likely to slow. And at the same time, we're going to see different types of compute technologies, to, to different types of software technologies. And when those start to overlap with the, the economic shifts, right, we're going to see a change in the nature of work. We're going to see uh, potentially changes in the nature of economic growth, because many of these technologies are are likely to be deflationary as opposed to inflationary. And so they may, they may actually drive down growth while they increase performance on an individual basis or a corporate basis. So, so that's, I think, a major rogue wave. Say, say that again? Can you give me an example of that? Yeah. I, just, I just read a great article yesterday from uh, Howard Marks, the guy who runs Oak Tree. I don't know yeah. if you know that. Yeah, big. I know Howard Marks. He's, he's, uh, he's, <laughs> hey, I, I believe Warren Buffett once said, when Howard Marks speaks, I listen. 
Yeah, he's one of the only guys who's got a book recommendation from Warren Buffett right on the front of <laughs> the most important thing. Actually, he wasn't going to write the book yet, but he got a note from Warren because he's been doing his memos for like 20 years. Right. And he got a note from memo. I got a memo from Warren says, I really enjoy what you write. If you if you write a book, I'll give you an endorsement for it. And he said, <laughs> I guess I'm writing a book. So that's, why, that's how the first one got going. Anyways, I was reading his most recent memo yesterday sure. and and he was going through the pressures, the, the reasons we might expect inflation or might not. I was right. Interesting. So I'm really interested in in what you see as potentially deflationary pressures. So when when you increase efficiency more than you increase revenue output per hour or dollars earned per hour, you you have you have this interesting situation where you you can have a, def, a deflationary cycle in the economy. Even you know the the efficiency of production is going up. It's just not monetizing, and that there's there have been arguments. That's some of what's been happening over the last twenty years with what's called the solo residual, which is this the the, the bucket of money that that increases in the economy after you kind of decrease all the the, the other parts like you know. Uh, Population growth and investment in physical capital and whatnot—it's kind of the, the 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 margin on innovation, and that appears to be slowing. Can um, can you help me out with that? So, give me a real world example of efficiency went up, but overall dollars went down. Am I understanding that right? Uh, that that's exactly ex- exactly right. So, or, or the the rate of doll the the rate of value increase has gone down. So, I'm I'm looking at a PowerPoint deck on my computer right now and. Yeah, 20 years ago, I would have had a graphic designer who would have laid the thing out and I would have had, you know, so on and so forth. There would have been a whole organization that made this possible. I did it last night on my computer, you know, so it basically cost me, you know, $1,000 for a computer as opposed to, you know, $10,000 for a team. Yeah. And it got done faster. So, so I've radically increased efficiency, but the cost of production has dropped. Yes, but my question on that is, do, do you know Paul Pilzer, Paul Zane Pilzer? Have you read any of I, his books? I don't know him. He's this economist, kind of a funny economist. He's yeah. got this book called uh, God Wants You to Be Rich. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And he makes the point. So so my my question there is, when the work still gets done, but it, but it consumed less resources to get the work done, it would, one thought would be that those resources are now available for an additional good in mm-hmm. in in the economy but tell me is the concern that because the graphic designer didn't get paid that that the cash outlay didn't happen and that's where you're saying there's less dollars moving around or yeah. help me follow that so so there are, there are two things going on I, I may have used an imperfect analogy oh that's a- in the case of of artificial intelligence for example in theory it's what's called a general purpose innovation so this is going to like pervade everything and you know we use flavors of artificial intelligence and many of the things we do every day without even noticing it, right? Like how, how the, the bits that make up the sounds that you're hearing from my voice get to you. Like there's some flavor of art inte- artificial intelligence going on to make that happen. So, so this is happening all around us. The issue is that when it starts to replace tasks faster than you can take those people and put them in other jobs... That's when you ah, start to have problems. Totally follow you. That makes right? so much so, sense. So, um, in the mean, in the meantime, until a workforce gets retooled, essentially, exactly. And if that if that if that shift happens in ten years instead of thirty years, you know, you you have a huge problem. It it is interesting, like because if you could get those people retrained fast enough into a new skill that is needed, or where there is going to be increasing mm-hmm. demand, you know, like think think like. 
Ford and the Model T, right? Sure. If you get all these people in the horse horse care industry and the carriage building industry, if you can get them retooled fast enough to things that people want, you right. would you would grow the economy. But if they sit around on unemployment, right, and you know society isn't able to help them learn, you know, computer skills or whatever the new thing is for these for these folks in mm-hmm. our age, mm-hmm. you know, that's a big drain on the welfare state, right? There, there are that's a that's a PhD level question. <laughs> So, so there are a number of questions within that question. Is it a big drain globally? Is it a big drain in the United States? So let's take a look at the United States as an example. So there's a, there's a concept, I'm not sure that I'm fully a believer, but there's a concept called modern monetary theory. And it, it, in some ways, it, it goes back to, to Keynes. In some ways, it's new. But basically, the idea is that if you have uh, part of the idea I should say, is if you have overproductivity of the economy, if you make more goods than you need, which is the potential problem that we have, what you're really doing, what you really want to do is figure out how do you how do you manage inflation, right? So you can keep paying people in the bottom of the economy to not do things, to go and climb mountains, whatever they want to do. And that keeps the money moving, that keeps everything circulating. And that's a way to deal with overproductivity. That's how we're stimulating the economy now, right? With with so many people not working due, due to COVID and, and so on and so forth. That's part of why we've had such a bump in, you know, in the stock market is we're just shoveling money in to keep the money, the, the economy stimulated. Now the question becomes, how long can you do that? And, and I think there are two answers to it. You know, one is as long as the U.S. is a major military power and as long as the U.S. really drives global trade and, and the dollar continues to drive global trade, we can probably do that for a long time. And everybody else just kind of has to deal with our inflationary. The question is what happens when that game runs out, right? What happens when you have a situation like a China being the largest economy in the world uh, and having an equivalent size middle class and, and maybe having different geostrategic objectives, maybe having different inflationary pressures, so on and so forth. And maybe that all that scenario, you could see that scenario where all of that happens in so that, Japan, in Europe, in China, all at the same time. That's a that, really could, interesting, that could make it all unravel real fast. That's a really interesting premise. Could you, could you see a future where people would want the RMB to be the the global reserve currency? I think within that, there are a couple of questions. Yeah, the first is if the RMB, you know, if all but a couple of countries already are trading more with China than they are with the US and everybody becomes, you know, and, and as populations get older, as consumption decreases, many of these countries become debtor countries. You know, why would China agree to you know, bond terms, debt terms on the dollar, independent of whether you think it's a good idea. Why is that a good idea for China? Sorry, do you mean would would China stop buying U.S. debt? No, I'm saying that would China contract debt from other countries on the dollar? Italy? Yeah. Well, my question is more like Germany, France. Yeah. Thinking about free countries, would they ever, could you see a future where they would let a communist regime, where they would voluntarily you know, subject themselves to the currency fluctuations of, of a communist regime. Because that's do you, something I wouldn't consider. But it, but, but it would be like earth shattering if it happened. Yeah. Well, do, do you believe that Germany is going to go on another austerity binge with Southern Europe? I mean, it may not be an option. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a, that would be a big upset 
if it happens. Uh, I, 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 I don't. I can't. I can't argue plus or minus on this. But I, I'm saying that this, you know, the 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 desire of you know the euro was built, developed, you know, to to be a counter to U.S.'s the the U.S. dollar as the basis of international trade. It hasn't worked so far. But you know, if there are a couple of economies, India, China, you know, that start to get significantly larger than the U.S., this could be a real issue. Especially if they're large import export countries. Yeah. Well, what are, your, what, what are your thoughts, Jess? <laughs> yeah, I, I, to me, um, to me, I could I could see something much more likely to happen. Even though I'm not a big crypto guy, I could see something much more likely headed towards something where there's an independently verifiable ledger. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the you look at the very counter freedom things that still happen in mm-hmm. China. And, and mm-hmm. I just see it really unlikely that the, you know, the democratic world would embrace that, mm-hmm. you know. And so that that one's probably a bigger stretch for me. But the idea of like, you know, the idea of a stable coin or the idea of, of a gold backed something <laughs> crypto or, something, you know, sure. like replacing the, the dollar. Because, I mean, look, currently it's very fashionable in America to take out huge credit card credit card debts for our grandkids so they somebody can get reelected. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the Keynesian economics of like run a deficit in bad times so that you can boost the economy and then run a surplus mm-hmm. in the good times and pay mm-hmm. it back. Like mm-hmm. politicians love half of that recipe. They love, Running a yeah, deficit, absolutely. handing out free money is a great way to get reelected. Sure. You know, in the last hundred years, we have yet to have politicians with like <laughs> with the fortitude to do the unpopular thing of what's right for the country and pay pay off some of the credit card debt. Well, well, there's a second piece of the Keynesian model that that they also don't really like, which is the the giveaways to the bottom half to to manage inflationary pressure. So, so yes, it's been a very selective argument for sure. Yeah. I, uh, so like, I can see the point that, you know, politicians who believe we can run the, we can run the credit card forever. Like, you know, there's something that is inherently skeptical in me about that. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, you know, the rest of the world going like, ooh, like, yeah, I don't want to have like communists, you know, Iran or China or one of the other, one of the other, you know, dictatorship countries that would like to run the world. I don't want to mm-hmm. let them be in charge either. But, you know, something with an independent ledger maybe could be. Sure. I, 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 I see a world in which we... I see a very different world 20 years from now than than the world today and and I don't think people understand how fast the the worm can turn you know at the beginning of World War II you know Britain was the the undisputed major military power in Asia when Singapore fell and it fell in a couple of days it effectively ended the entirety of uh, its Asian colonies, its control of its Asian colonies, because the, the the colonies looked at it and said, if you can't protect Singapore, how can you protect India? You know, how can you protect Australia? And that caused a complete shift, you know, in moment toward U.S. dominance for the next you know, seventy five years well, in Asia. Look so, at so these things, these things, these things happen fast. And what's interesting to me there is like here here's a way that I see that I think it'll take a nine eleven or something to wake people up to, mm-hmm. but. I mean, the the unclassified cyber attacks from Iran, mm-hmm. from North Korea, from China on U.S. infrastructure are extremely significant. So mm-hmm. I have a bunch of military clients from our, mm-hmm. at our consulting firm. 
mm-hmm. and some former intelligence officers that come like sure. teach like sales training classes to our consulting mm-hmm. classes, mm-hmm. let alone the stuff that is not in the newspapers, right? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, having the best, having air, having air dominance is really important when people are fighting with bullets, mm-hmm. right? But when people can like reverse the sewage and have everybody in town think they're drinking clean water when they're not and get an entire city sick at once mm-hmm. because of because of a hacker like mm-hmm. that is talk about asymmetric warfare talk about like a mm-hmm. very small number of dudes in North Korea being mm-hmm. able to change the lives of millions of Americans at once mm-hmm. you know what i mean you didn't you don't need you don't need a new F35 or F55 or whatever the newest one's going to be to i mean our our infrastructure is so unprotected in America I, I mean, look at the solar winds hack and and mm-hmm. how many U.S. government agencies have had like potentially significant amounts of defense nullified mm-hmm. because of ones and zeros, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I I uh, completely agree with you, and I guess that there's a question in there which is, you know, in a world of cyber warfare that's so asymmetrical, is deterrence even possible? Well, yeah. I don't know. Think about that, like Wayne U.S. It's not like the U.S. isn't playing the same kinds of games, by the way. Yes, and building the same kinds of capabilities, and you know. Uh, yes, but okay. So I've been in, I've because I've had a bunch of generals and colonels as clients, Mm -hmm. right? There is, and the this isn't this isn't uh, special for the U.S. military. In militaries in general, are busy fighting the last war. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the tactics and stuff in the last one is what they do the next one with. Mm-hmm. right? And when you look at the public outcry and you look at the funding levels of what happens, mm-hmm. like even though absolutely the U.S. is working on those capabilities as they should, if, if we're not going to just have the, you know, like I remember my one of my mentors, he actually we had him on the show. His name is Joel Davis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, your only ability in negotiation is your ability to say no. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's not a negotiation. It's an education <laughs> of them telling you how it's going to be, right? Sure. Where I, get, I guess where my frustration is, is just like the, just like the 2008 meltdown. You know, mm-hmm. like I remember years before my boss in Southern California saying, wow, when I look at how many people are buying spec homes in Phoenix right now from where mm-hmm. we lived in Orange County, sure. that, that everything is dependent on zero changes in the rate. Mm-hmm. You know, in the interest rate, like he's like, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of tears when that thing adjusts at all. You know, it just makes me think of like the Nicholas Taleb book, Anti-Fragile, right? Sure. It's like everything is dependent on everything going smoothly. Right. Maybe, maybe not the <laughs> ideal business plan, right? And sure. And so the more if, you know, if people knew that's happening on mass, doesn't take a crystal ball to say like, ooh, if enough people are crying all at the same time, that could affect a lot more other things, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is me for like the cyber warfare thing is, um, well, look at terrorism, right? We mm-hmm. knew about bin Laden. We knew about the bombings, you know, the coal, look at USS Cole, look at these things, sure. killing Americans, right? One of my friends who helps us, who, who works heavily in the child rescue world that we do of countering terrorism, you know, he mm-hmm. was in Lebanon during the, mm-hmm. when the guy drove the big truck bomb into the Marine barracks, right? Sure. But it took 9-11 to get all the lawmakers and the budget people around here mm-hmm. to to take it serious, right? Sure. And it's like, I guess it's personally frustrating to, to feel like it's going to take some massive loss of life or something like that for it to not just be like that add-on of like, oh, and cyber too, instead of seeing it mm-hmm. as what percentage of the problem it potentially... 
What what percentage of the problem the evidence makes it appear to be? Our budgets and our use of our military intelligence agency's focus does not appear to to have a equal weighting to what sure. percentage of the problem it's ten, it, it appears to be to me at least. And obviously, I don't know the future well, and I don't know and, everything. But and the, I think there's a second piece to that, which which is deep, more deeply concerning to me, which is our national research and development infrastructure. Mm. So it's grown, you know, our U.S. research and development spending has grown, you know, fantastically since 1980. But it's been gov- it's been private research and development spending. The U.S. government spending has barely kept up with GDP, if at all. And when mm. we take a look at the the China competitiveness bill, which is really rethinking our industrial structure as a country, you know, it's kind of just getting it back to where it was in 19 in terms of government spending. And the reality is Google has very different goals, you know, than the military. And Googlers might or might not be wanting to contract with the military. So how do you deal with that if we've built this private R&D infrastructure that doesn't meet public needs or these longer term public needs and instead meets quarterly needs? And I'm not I'm not railing on Google as a specific company. I'm I'm saying that I think that we're we're really We've thought very poorly about what kind of society we want to live in and how our technology spending drives that. You know, I appreciate that. Steve Blank, who I have so much respect for, had him on the show. I really like what he's been doing of taking Stanford and Silicon Valley innovation principles and running these innovation programs for government Mm-hmm. You know, trying to translate some of that. Mm-hmm. But I think that I, I would think it would be amazing if we could get more sub- public support where, you know, different governors, different senators and congressmen felt like, oh, if I do more of this, I'll get reelected because this is what my constituency wants. You right. Know? It, it's an interesting thing. And like, here's the thing. If we didn't have Iran, Russia, China, uh, North Korea lobbying to run the world. You know, like mm-hmm. those weren't our second choices. It right. probably wouldn't be as big an issue. Like if it was between right. us and if, the yeah, British, if, or if it was right, between right. us yeah. and if if the EU could get its act together, we'd have a yeah, problem. Sure, right? If that yeah. was a, you know, like, it wouldn't be quite as concerning to me, right? I'm sure like tons of my uh, tons of people listening will, will take exception with that. But like when it's between us and those, any of those four, it's like it's a significant problem for me uh. at least. And the question is whether the world has a choice in the matter, you know, and and like it's one of those questions of who benefits and who pays. Right. When you take a look at Europe, you know, like I, I disagree with Trump about a lot of things, a lot of them. I'm definitely not a Trumper. But when you take a look at Europe and the the amount of defense spending that the U.S. does to protect the Europe, to and, it, and it's been historical, right? Trying to, to counter Soviet threats and buy influence and so on and so forth. You know, maybe maybe it's time for others to pay a little more, <laughs> a little more of their money if what you're saying is, you know, we'll see. But but the reality is these these you know, all of the issues you're talking about are again ratchet up geopolitical tensions. You know. And and somehow that's got to get paid for, and somehow okay. that long term investment's got to be done, and it can't be done, you know, uh, through Google. It's got to get done through government spending. Yeah, let's do this. This is a good part for for this is a good place to end part one because it'll be a cliffhanger because I've got a bunch more <laughs> questions for you. So everybody, now you have to tune into part two to hear where this is going because I've got two different financial opportunities for the entrepreneurs listening to to help with this issue, and I want you to weigh in on what you think of them. Okay. Looking forward to it. Okay. Bye, everyone. Tune in to part two.